Siddhartha grew up and, and uh, didn't uh, see uh, any old people, sick people, or dead, dead people at all. He, that all of this, the old age, sickness, and death were, were removed from his experience of life and protected in a, in a kind of the special environment where everybody was young, beautiful, everything was uh, pleasant, uh, healthy, and lively, and privileged. Then, uh, then uh, eventually he uh, managed to go outside this particular idyllic environment where he came across the, the heavenly messengers. Uh, and in Buddhism, the heavenly messengers are old age, sickness, and death. And the uh, spiritual practitioner, or the, um, or the, the mendicant, or the, the monk, So this is also a story of how in youth we usually are not very interested in old age, sickness, and death. These things don't mean much to us, even though we might see them. We might have an old grandmother and, and uh, we get sick and we, we hear about death and so forth. But these aren't really very strong impressions until we get to a certain age. And also the importance of the religious life, like it's interesting to see people bringing their children to meet me, or the monks or the nuns, and children just, you know, they have no conception of our, what we're doing. They just look like strange uh, people, or, you know, they kind of, you know not, not very interesting. They much prefer to go to a rock concert, or, or some violent, uh, see some violent video. Then you come and look at a, a bald-headed monk, or a nun, bald-headed nun, uh, an old people, isn't it? This youthful society of the present time is old people are not highly regarded, you say, in the, in the Western world. It's considered boring, uninteresting, unproductive uh, burden on the society, generally speaking, once you get over 65. I've got two years, two years left. And I'll be probably sent out to pasture, put in old people's homes. Sickness also. We, we, we notice how, uh, you know, any kind of uh, deformities or, or uh, diseases of any unpleasant nature are are usually generally hidden away from us <coughs> in the Western world. Here in Britain, for example, you know, we, we don't really see very much in terms of physical deformity or disease in, the, in our daily life. It's not it's usually uh, kept out of sight. Uh, and then death is, uh, is uh, also another thing that is usually considered uh, not very, you know, something that polite people don't even mention. And, and it's sometimes quite a shock to me when, you know, how, when people die, how shocked people are, or how upset when somebody, when somebody dies, even of old age. They somehow are not prepared in any way to, to uh, contemplate that as a, as a natural experience, even though one part of us knows that we're all going to die, and yet there's another part of us that doesn't want to really know that. So we can, you know, live our lives very much on level of romance, adventure, excitement, material acquisitions, uh, pleasures, uh, having a good time, holidays, work, relationships, and all the rest that, that make life interesting and meaningful for us. But also, in terms of spiritual development, it's when we begin to awaken to the natural process that we all have to experience, the aging um, the, of the body, the, its, uh, it's uh, sicknesses and diseases and the death. Uh, also in our experience, we all, have to, we all have to deal with the loss of loved ones, isn't it? watching our parents get old, get sick and die, seeing our, or our friends, or our grandparents, um, pets and all this, we all in, in you know, every one of us has in some way been affected by death. 
uh, of, of something, somebody or some creature that we have loved and then lost. And then death is a, what happens, you know, what is death about? Where do they go? What happens to them? And then when we're a child and, and somebody dies, you think, what ha where do they go? Uh, and they say, well, um, they go up to heaven or they're with God or the various, you know, ways of, of making us uh, think in a way that it, it sounds quite all right. Uh, but the fact is that death in, as actual experience is that what we have, what hasn't happened to us yet. You know, we're all experiencing life within incarnated form, human form, sensory uh, experience. And it's like this. So death is what we don't know. We will know eventually. But right now, as, as direct experience, you know, that, we, that, has, that we've actually experienced, we, all we can say is we don't know. And not knowing that you know, makes us feel very uncomfortable. We don't like that feeling of not knowing. So oftentimes the subject is just avoided. Or we, we satisfy ourselves with other people's explanations, like when you die, you're dead, that's it. Nothing. Oblivion. No soul, no self. Uh, you die and that's, that's the end. Nothing remains. But that's the thing, we don't really know that. I don't. <laughs> well, then if you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. It's another explanation. Or you get reincarnated. And then we have all kinds of theories about that. And some people, I was visiting a theosophical group in, in Western Australia one time, and, the, and the, the head of it said, we believe in reincarnation. We firmly believe that this is, this is uh, the truth, but we do not accept the idea that, that once you've been reincarnated as a human being, that you could get reborn as anything lower than a human being. We do not accept reincarnation as a, that, it, that you would get reborn, reincarnated as a frog or a toad or something like that. Once you've reached the human state, then your next reincarnation, you'd be human or higher. He says, that's what I believe. Do you really know that? <laughs> or do you just believe it? Other people believe that if you, if you spent your life acting like a frog, then you probably get reborn as a frog. <laughs> Seems logical enough, too. Some people act like pigs. You can imagine they, then the last thought is about a pork chop or something, and then you get... <laughs> or mad cow disease and get born as a, as a British mad cow. <clears throat> but these are speculations, aren't they? These are reincarnation. I mean, it's not that, that we're dismissing any of these as, as untrue, but we're, we're noting the, in the direct way of what we can know that uh, through our own experience and what we just know about through the experience of others or through what we're told. And so this, uh, the Buddha is the one who knows the way it is, the awakened uh, wisdom that we begin to take refuge in when we're, when we when we're practicing meditation state of attentive awareness where we're, we're learning to to watch and listen to life rather than just be caught in the momentum of our habits and feelings and passions of the moment. So enlightenment then is uh, possible for all of us in this between the, the birth that's already taken place and the death which is sometime in the future. In other words, this awakening uh, ability we have as human beings. And the Buddha was pointing to this, that, that this human birth is, in Buddhist terms, is a very fortunate one because uh, we have this, a, a reflective mind. We have a mind that can contemplate. 
it's not just we're not just caught in conditioning. Uh, just uh, we're not just creatures of habit. Even though we can be that, we can be just helpless victims of our conditioning, our instincts, and so forth. Or we we don't have to be. We can awaken. And so Buddhist meditation is the experience of awakenment, awakening. And, and, and in that awakened state, where it is intu- it's like, it's very intuitive and reflective, we begin to understand the truth of the way it is, or we begin to realize the Dhamma. And this word Dhamma, it means that, you know, it's best translated into English as the truth of the way it is. So in the the realm that we live in as, as human beings is a conditioned realm. The human body, uh, senses, uh, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, um, the, the mental formations themselves, all thoughts, all emotions, feelings, perceptions, consciousness itself are conditions that arise and cease, are impermanent. And so we, this realm that we live in, that we're experiencing, is a realm of impermanence, is a realm of where everything dies, everything begins, ends, and everything that is born dies. So this is reflected upon. We're observing this in terms of the way it is, rather than whether we like it or don't like it, or how good or bad or pleasant or painful it might be, because on the level of the sense experience, there, there, we, we have to bear with a whole range of pleasurable and painful experiences through a lifetime. Being a sensitive form, from the time we're born to the time we die, we've gone through how many uh, pleasant and painful experiences through sight or sound or smell, taste, touch, or thinking emotional conditioning. So the Buddha, when he was enlightened, leaving the, the privileged life of, of the uh, royal royalty, the aristocracy, the, 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 the life of all the best that society can offer, in, in other words, that, that uh, particular story Prince Siddhartha was privileged in having the best that, that life had to offer at that time in terms, of, in terms of the human situation. And yet realizing how unsatisfactory it all was, that even though he had all the advantages, there's something in him was not content with, with just that, just being, having, being, uh, uh, having a status and wealth and pleasure. So then he, the, the prince leaves this, this, uh, this privileged life. Uh, the story goes, uh, he, had, he was married, had a beautiful wife, child, he, uh, he had, uh, and he, which he loved. He wasn't trying to, he wasn't deserting his wife because he was tired of her. And so he goes, he really loved her. This was a great sacrifice, having to leave someone you love and your child, because something in him was responding to this, this sense of, of uh, spiritual awakening. Something in him was, had awakened to that there was something more to life than just the family, the kingdom, the, the, um, the sustaining of material wealth and the only worldly values. Because with all of us, there's that sense too, a kind of intuition that there's more to it than just that our human state isn't just uh, a meaningless experience of just procreating the species, eating, sleeping, surviving, and then dying for what reason? What's the point of it anyway? We're, because we think and we can contemplate, we, we cannot find real satisfaction and contentment just on the level of being privileged and having wealth and good health and attractive appearance and the best of, of, the, of, what, of what we can imagine in this realm. 
because there's this spiritual side to it. And from primitive, most primitive forms of humanity, there's this search in, 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 for the divinity or God, something or something transcendent reality in whatever possible ways that our thoughts are, and, our, and our contemplations, whatever expressions they may take, they're pointing to something beyond just the mortal state of our human experience through the body and the senses. So you have these different religious conventions from primitive uh, uh, animistic forms to, to uh, more sophisticated ones and and that uh, say that um, major religions uh, that, that we now accept as, as being major religions, but there's also many uh, kind of uh, tribal gods and divinities and religious uh, uh, expression. But when you when you really uh, take them down to their essence, they're they're all saying they're all in their own way pointing to what is transcendent or immortal or deathless. Because this is a, an intuition, an intuition. When we're just caught in reason and logic, when we're trying to just be rational and, and uh, figure things out with dualistic thought, then we can be, uh, we can be either sentimental eternalists or uh, rational kind of uh, annihilationists. Uh, to extreme, where we we can imagine a, a, a heavenly realm, some place where where we will live happily ever after, is a kind of eternalist view, or the opposite is a total annihilation: dead, you're dead, there's nothing left. And that's how thought works. You 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 have various permutations, variations on that theme. But but thinking about life, thinking about uh, what happens after we die and trying to figure it all out with thought then we, we end up either preferring one over the other either the, the eternalist or the annihilationist or the agnostic the one that uh, isn't quite sure which, which side to follow because uh, in, and in the western world we've, we've elevated uh, rational thinking, reasonableness, logic, and that to being a, the kind of ultimate human attainment. I mean, we praise that, isn't it? The, the scientists, the, 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 the nuclear scientists, the physicists, the, the, the genius that, that has developed the, the, the ability to think to a high level. And yet, ultimately, it they, it, uh, uh, that, that is not the way towards liberation or towards realization. You can't think yourself into enlightenment. So then the Buddha pointed to this, to meditation, which is a, an intuitive, you developing the intuitive abilities, which is mindfulness, and using our ability to contemplate, reflect, observe, witness to, watch to the way things are as we experience them. Not according to their quality uh, as uh, being red or blue or male or female, good or bad or whatever, but to their characteristic of conditions. All conditions are impermanent. Because that takes in everything, from the most subtle movements of your, of your mind to uh, all emotional experiences, good or bad, to whatever you, you, you see, hear, smell, taste, touch. All of this is seen, you're contemplating its impermanence, which gives you a sense of detachment from the conditions that you're experiencing. When you take the this reflection on impermanence and contemplate it enough, you, you begin to, to detach from, say, emotional habits and, and uh, opinions and views and being able to look at something in a much more objective way than you, than you would if you were just caught up in your 
liking and disliking of the conditions. Usually we're caught in just this, this reactiveness to life. Praise and blame, isn't it? When we're praised, we're happy. When we're blamed, we're depressed. So when we're uh, good fortune and bad fortune, good fortune, success, bad fortune, failure, and all that, we uh, high, we get high, and then we get low. So the worldly life, they, when we're just caught in the in the experiences of the world, then we're always going up and down with these. When we're when everything's going well, we're happy. And when everything's going wrong, we're depressed. So we're, we're kind of caught in the, in the, in the experience of life, uh, helpless victims of it, usually, because how much control do we have to make life a, a continuous experience of praise, good fortune, success, health, and happiness? And most of us cannot manage that. And so much of it is the opposite, isn't it? It's pain, it's, a, it's a loss of loved ones, it's, it's being blamed and being criticized. It's being, we, have, we experience so much misery from these kind of experiences in this realm. But in terms of reflection, we can observe. We can observe the impermanence of blame, criticism, of despair, of depression, of unhappiness, of pain, of misfortune, of loss, of failure. These, these are conditions that we experience, but they are also, that's what they are, they're conditions. They're impermanent. So we, we're learning to relate to them in a much more objective way, intuitive way, by contemplating the impermanent nature rather than the, uh, the quality or the quantity of the condition itself. So this, now we find here in Europe a lot of interest in meditation because European civilization has taken uh, analysis and rational thinking up, you know, to a high level. And so we, we have uh, done kind of miraculous uh, things as, uh, you know, being able to manipulate the material world and, that, and mental world to uh, give us a lot of uh, uh, interesting experiences. Life is probably much more interesting than it, than it ever has been in terms of the average person. Prince Siddhartha, you know, with, with all the palaces and privileges, probably his life was much more boring than ours because they didn't have computers, television, airplanes. You know, my life is a, is a very interesting life. Even as a Buddhist monk, which is supposed to be really boring. <laughs> I wish it were more boring. But I... I Getting, Buddhist monks are, are in these days, so you get invited everywhere. <laughs> so now, say the average person, when I look at, you know, just say, most people I know here, then they have Quite, we have quite a privileged life in terms of material comfort and security. Our expectation is high, isn't it? We, in terms of the politics, political system, and the, and, and the economy, and social rights, and welfare, and all the rest, we expect we, we have high expectations uh, for the, uh, that the, the world around us, the society we live in, meet our needs and take care of us. And I don't think before human beings ever expected that, uh, you know, that, that's fairly recent, this, this demand of the average person uh, for this, this uh, a kind of fair system that takes care of it. Uh, so in that way we have, you know, we have, we have certain advantages and privileges. But we also, the, the bad effect of that is that we, we suffer a lot from things like despair, uh, depression, 
stress, mental ailments, isn't it? Because we we don't have to struggle that much just to survive. We can we can get by. Uh, we can we can here in Britain. It's easy just to get along in the system. You know, the system will carry you. Even the most you know the laziest person that doesn't want to be bothered. The, the system will carry them. You know, you won't die. You don't have to struggle. You, you just have to go to the right places. So, I mean, the, the society is one that doesn't make very, doesn't make many demands in terms of, of uh, how you live in it, isn't it? And so, in that way, we, uh, our lives sometimes become even more meaningless. When you're you're just trying to survive, isn't it? Trying to su- get enough rice just to give, you know, to, to take home to feed your, your wife and children just for one meal. And your life has significance. I mean, you don't have time to get depressed, feel sorry for yourself, or feel bad because your father didn't love you enough. And you just out. <laughs> you're just glad to see if you can find a slice of bread uh, to take home. When, when we, when we when say in modern life, we, we expect an awful lot. And in that expectation, we suffer also because we can see all kinds of people having more than us. We have jealousy, envy, and uh, resentments of all kinds because we have, we have time to think about our lives a lot. So meditation then is a, is a way of training ourselves. It's, it's definitely something that is increasingly appreciated in affluent Western world because it does help us to deal with our minds. Because now our suffering, so much of our suffering these days isn't around uh, just a, a bad political system or a tyrannical social system, and that, but it's about just the, the, the endless uh, the way the mind conditioned to to be negative, to create negative reactions to to our lives, even though we might be very well off and very privileged. Here in Britain, for example, some of the most miserable people are are the most privileged. You, know, you, you meet people, you know, who have everything, and they oftentimes really miserable, you know, being very negative, very resentful, and frightened and anxious. And that's because the mind is they've not been able to free themselves from the conditioning of their mind. They've become, they become victims of their own uh, conditioning, social conditioning. So in meditation we're, we're learning to use this awareness and wisdom to transcend, like we're transcending our social conditioning, our cultural conditioning. Doesn't mean we're turning our back on it or rejecting it. It means we're we're getting perspective on it. We're awakening to the way it really is, rather than just feel like we're helplessly stuck, maybe with some very unpleasant emotional habits. We begin to see a way to transcend and to liberate ourselves from the the suffering that we create around these habits. And so meditation is something increasingly appreciated by people, uh, those of us who have been uh, doing it for a number of years, we, we realize that the profound effect it has and the liberating effect it has on our minds. And so this teaching of the Lord Buddha was uh, the Dhammajaka, uh, the, the Four Noble Truths teaching, was delivered in, in India 2,540 years ago. Uh, it was uh, after the Buddha's enlightenment, he, he, uh, he then uh, sought his five uh, colleagues who, who he before had left him, thinking he was... Uh, kind of failing as a, as a proper ascetic. And uh, he, after his own enlightenment, he, he decided to spend the rest of his life kind of 
uh, trying to establish the convention that would carry on the teaching that he dis- that he realized, so that for the next five thousand years, uh, human beings on this planet would have an opportunity to to hear this teaching and to practice it. So here we are now today in Amravati. <laughs> May this monastic order is uh, is from that lineage, isn't it? It's we we. Uh, we consider ourselves uh, in that lineage from the uh, Buddha of India 2,500 years ago to this present moment because he established a conventional form, a traditional form uh, that would survive all the political, economic, social changes, uh, cultural uh, developments and deteriorations that would that, are, that have taken place in 2,500 years. How many empires have arisen and disappeared in 2,500 years? You know, you think of, uh, you know, how these great empires, world, you know, emperors, uh, world emperors, and, and all of that have uh, arisen and, and ceased. How many of them? British Empire is gone now. Hong Kong next year. <laughs> Last remnant, <laughs> and then uh, to mention all the others, the uh, the Roman, Greek, and or well, Chinese, and the whole lot. They've, uh, you know, various Indian uh, developments in civilization and uh, cultural uh, developments have arisen and ceased and changed, and and through that, the somehow the the teaching of the Lord Buddha survived. In terms of Buddhism itself, Buddhism uh, on its conventional, on kind of conventional form can, can kind of uh, develop and degenerate. But the teaching remains a constant, constantly pure form, like the teaching of the Lord Buddha, the Four Noble Truths. In spite of 2,500 years, the teaching is, is exactly the same. It's not been changed, not been corrupted, uh, through all the ups and downs of uh, civilization, wars and conflict and, and development, uh, the teaching is still exactly say, the, the essential teaching that the Buddha gave to his five disciples 2,500 years ago. That's quite remarkable. Isn't it? The teaching itself is, uh, is based on the experience of suffering, the most common experience that human beings have, isn't it? We all suffer. So, so that this is the first noble truth is the truth of suffering, that there is this suffering. And so that was, as, you know, that's, that's a truth that, that isn't uh, a, a cultural truth. It's not a, you know, that people suffered more in ancient India than they do now. We suffer more. Our suffering is different than, than it was by people who lived at the time of the Buddha. Suffering is the same, isn't it? We, we suffer because we, we, the, we have to experience loss of the love. We all, in a human, human lifetime, experience so much grief, loss of love, things that we like and love and depend on. We all, that's, a, that's a natural experience for all of us. We all have to experience having to put up and endure and bear with what we don't like and don't want. That's another. That's the same in ancient India as it is today. Even in a, in a, in a modern country like this, and trying to make it efficient and clean and, and, and as, I, as good as we can, we still have to bear with so much unpleasantness and things, things that we don't like, don't want. We all suffer because we want things that we don't have. We all suffer from the attachment to the body, the the appearance of it, whether it's male or female, young or old, uh, whether it's uh, good-looking or not, whether the complexion is beautiful or or not. um, We suffer, you know, modern life is... 
creates these, these illusions that we should all be incredibly attractive and good-looking. And then we suffer because we're never quite as good-looking as we would like to be. And then we attach to, to, the, to the body, to, the, to its health and its vigor, and then that, that changes. We have emotions, we feel things so much. People can, even though we, you know, people can insult us, offend us, just by saying something unpleasant to us. We can be really wounded to the point of wanting to murder that person or kill ourselves just by what somebody says to us. So what's that about? It's, it's, this realm that we live in is this realm of it's a highly sensitized state that we're in from birth to death. This is a totally experience of sensitivity from birth, the time you were born to the time your body dies. You have to feel everything. Whatever impinges, comes at you, good or bad, pleasant or painful, you, you feel it. And, you, and then we also can create with our minds. And we can create all kinds of miserable mental states with our minds. Hatred and resentment and jealousy and despair and that we create these mental states through thought, thinking. So the way to liberate our minds from this is to understand it. So the first noble truth uh, the the advice the Buddha gave is understand suffering. Don't just try to get rid of it or react to it or blame it on somebody else. Understand it. Really examine it. Know it. Know what suffering is. Because usually we're, we, we react as soon as something unpleasant, we resist it or we have pain or discomfort or that we, we develop ways of distracting ourselves, or resisting, or running away. But instead, the Buddha said, understand. To understand something, you have to accept something before you can understand it. If you're just caught in resisting and trying to get rid of something, you can't understand it. You just, you just, uh, you know, resistance prevents any kind of understanding of life. So it's through this non-resistance and through this embracing of experience that we began to understand the causes of suffering and the way to let go of those causes and the way to realize uh, the, the peace of Nibbana, the way of non-attachment, non-suffering. So this is within our human potential, isn't it? The human, human condition allows us to, to reflect and to realize, to understand things as they really are. Then the uh, final, uh, the Parinibbana of the Lord Buddha is uh, the, the, the uh, historical Buddha. He was born, his body was born, grew up, he was enlightened, and then he died. But the death was of the body, isn't it? That's the, that's, the, that's the nature of the body. And so the, this, uh, and then the, the, uh, and the Buddha was teaching about the ending of things. What is death really in terms of our experience before our body dies? What is, because we experience the loss and the ending and cessation of things of many things in our lives before our physical death. So the Buddha emphasized this mindfulness and investigation of the cessation of conditions, conditions experience. So we began to recognize the, the natural way of cessation of thoughts and feelings and, uh, and that, uh, that our emotional states, uh, as they cease, we, we are open and aware of the way they are, their arising and their cessation. So we began to, to realize that death itself is just that, the ending of something that began. And therefore we, 
we're no longer attached, identified with the death-bound condition. We're realizing what's called the amatta, or the deathless reality. So in the Buddhist teaching, there's a teaching to pointing to that deathless amatta dhamma, or uh, immortal reality, that is always with us, but which we, 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 we don't notice because we're so caught up in reacting to the conditions that we're experiencing. So when the Lord Buddha died, body died, but that was, that was it. That wasn't the Buddha, the body wasn't the Buddha. And by that time, he was, uh, there was no problem. It was just he understood the process. So there was no fear, no resistance, no, uh, n- no reaction, but a, a, uh, a willingness to let go of this, of this uh, human condition, this, this physical condition. So on this Visakha Puja day, this is a, to contemplate this, that your, your own uh, opportunity to, to develop a more profound understanding of your own experience of life. This is available to us. As people who have this interest, there's something to treasure, something to really appreciate, the fact that, that you have an interest and, and the opportunity to listen to the Dhamma, and to practice it. Now in Britain, these, these aren't remote possibilities. They, 30, 40 years ago, it was hard to find anybody who knew anything about Buddhism in this country, uh, much less uh, any places, to, that any teachers that could, or anyone that could show you how to put it into practice. Remember, I'm living in uh, Berkeley, Thirty years, thirty-five years ago, uh, looking for a meditation teacher in San Francisco Bay Area, I was in a university, and and I was a Buddhist, looking for a meditation teacher. Couldn't find anyone, and that's in a very avant-garde with it place too. You know, everything starts there. Any kind of new age movements and things like that. You know, they usually start there before they ever get anywhere else. And yet in, in 1960, to find a, a Buddhist who would teach meditation was, I couldn't, I mean, I was looking. Went to Chinatown in San Francisco, I remember. Chinatown, and the Buddhist temples in Chinatown. I went there, I went to a Buddhist temple, nobody would even speak to me. I couldn't speak Chinese, and they just looked at me as some kind of white man, and uh, wouldn't even say hello. So that was, I, I just thought, well, I'm not getting nowhere here, and then I went to Japanese area, no interest. Finally decided, well, maybe I can't do Buddhism, but there was a Vedanta society, so I started going to a Vedanta society, Hindu organization in San Francisco. And uh, they were friendly and welcoming, but I'd fall asleep all the time. The, the Swami was incredibly boring. <laughs> and then they had a, a Sri Aurobindo ashram in Golden Gate Park in those days. Went there, but nothing really clicked. And these were just, these were kind of what was available then, uh, say 1960, in the Bay Area of California. Now if you go there, there's, you get, get directories that thick, all kinds of meditation groups, uh, psychic uh, channelers, and a whole lot, a whole, you know, everything. I've got absolutely everything uh, uh, on the subject of religion, spiritual development, psychic development. That, in 30 years, I mean, 30 years ago, that was really, there wasn't very much even there.
So that's one reason I went to Thailand. In the hope of finding, well, found a very good teacher, John Shah. So I was very lucky, but I had to, yeah, couldn't find it in my own country, so I had to go to Asia to, to find somebody who had that kind of, of wisdom and gave that kind of opportunity, a monastic form tradition. But now, say in the, say here in Britain, these, these, these uh, and, and even uh, in terms of going to Asia, it's not difficult anymore, is it? It's easy to go to Thailand or Sri Lanka, places like that. It's not, not beyond the average person's ability. It's to have a holiday in an Asian country. But 30 years ago, that was rare, you know. To even think of going to Thailand or Sri Lanka was uh, like maybe very few people might actually go there and only once in their lifetime. You know, they're kind of big deal. And then never think of going again. And I travel, I commute back and forth all the time. <laughs> Thailand and, and England. They can wait. <laughs> <laughs> Tell them the way. <laughs> well, just to to bring into your your consciousness the the opportunity that you have and, and try to encourage you to to take advantage of it because it is a very it's very much uh, what we need to do for ourselves also for the society we live in I mean if we, we see the problems facing us here living here in Britain for example uh, and what are the real problems here it's usually based on selfishness individual selfishness and uh, and just um, you know meaningless of life modern life here in in western europe is meaningless isn't it there's no seems pointless really just to to make money and buy things and uh, and yet we you know we can always want the government to make things better for us so let's that's not really the problem. It's, it's with us, isn't it? Our own wrong views, our own selfishness, is is the the real cause of suffering, not the not the not the government or the or the country. It's we who create this misery. So contemplate this and uh, offer this as a reflection for you on this very important day. And now the meditation class, you're going to be a few minutes late, but since I've wound you up now, I expect you all rush over there, <laughs> retreat center shrine room, and uh, where Sister Vayama will instruct you, and for those of you who have never practiced meditation, some basic instruction on meditation, and, and for those of you who already have uh, developed some practice, it'd be good just to go and... Uh, sit for a while and, uh, and practice uh, silent meditation. So I offer this for your reflection.